0: I'm Bradley Tusk, the host of Firewall. What you're about to hear is the second installment of our six part end of year series. In each episode, we're zeroing in on a single industry that we often talk about and care about and invest in here at Tusk and and here on Firewall. We started with Alexa von Tobel on FinTech. Today is Dr. Bob Wachter in healthcare. Dr. Wachter is really just about the perfect guest I can imagine. He's a practicing doctor. He's a teacher. He's a thinker. He's an innovator. He really looks at medicine from every possible angle. Um, Since COVID, as we all know, who listen to this podcast, digital health has really taken off. Some of us now may be back in doctor's waiting rooms, getting infections from other people and reading Reader's Digest, but a lot of us are preferring to do it digitally if we can. So the question is, where does it go from here? So we talked to Dr. Wachter about how he sees digital health, where he thinks it goes, what it could do, um, and then artificial intelligence. How does that impact the healthcare industry? What does it mean for the kind of care we get? And then finally, Omicron, that's you know a huge moving story. Uh, we recorded this uh, a week ago, so uh, some of it may have updated, but from everything I can tell, what Dr. Water had to say is still incredibly useful and helpful. So there's a ton of great stuff in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. Um, and I want to just close before we head into it by giving my own thesis on healthcare, which is it's as big of an industry as it gets. It's 18% of the economy, one in $5 basically gets spent on healthcare. Half of that goes through government hands. Now, I believe that we should be providing more care to more people, which means it will probably ultimately cost more money. However, you could do it in such a better way. That's what we talk about with Dr. Wachter. But if you really were to leverage technology and policy and regulation to say no to a lot of the conventional interests and start doing things smarter, we can deliver care that is better and cheaper uh, for a lot more people. So uh, that's why we're excited about uh, this topic and this episode. We've recorded roughly 150 firewalls in total. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is one of the best ones we've ever did. So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. Uh, as usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, really exciting guest today. It's an honor to have him, uh, Bob Walker, who is the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of San Francisco in California, University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Walker, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks
0: for having me. Um, I'm gonna just read your bio simply because I want the audience to know who you are. And my guess is that you will be too modest to say all of these things if I asked you to. Not the one my mother
1: sent in, please.
0: <laughs> Let's see. You know, she, I, I edited the one she sent me down a little bit, so it's not quite as bad as that. But you know, um, but he, I'm just gonna throw out these are all things about you. So this will hopefully embarrass you along the way. Mm-hmm. Your department is the best internal medicine department in the U.S. in the nation, according to U.S. News and World Report. You've written 300 articles and six books. You coined the term hospitalist, and you're considered the father of the hospitalist field. You were the president of the Society of Hospital Medicine, the chair of the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh, you've written uh, the top world world's top-selling safety primer, understand, understanding patient safety, uh, New York Times bestseller for uh, The Digital Doctor. You received the John M. Eisenberg Award for the nation's top honor of patient safety. You've been ranked one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the U.S. 13 different times, including number one in 2015. Member of the National Academy of Medicine, Master of American College of Physicians, um, and your tweets during COVID were viewed over 300 million times by 200,000 different followers. So, what what would
1: your mom be upset that I left out? There? I'm I'm exhausted. I think she'd say I'm 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 a good son and a good daddy. So that part. That part left <laughs> <Yeah. out>. Otherwise, <laughs> thank you. I wish we had more time for the podcast.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll We'll see you later. <laughs> right. um, so anyway, so thanks for doing this. And the thing that we've been looking at. Lately, especially on this podcast, is really kind of the changes since COVID, and trying to figure out uh, what are permanent societal changes, and, and what were solely as a result of the pandemic. We'll kind of resort back to uh, back to usual. So, I, I guess just to start off something something broad. You know what's your sense of that i mean clearly uh telemedicine has advanced quite a bit over the last 20 months or so uh our fund is investors in, in a bunch of telemedicine startups so we're, we're quite happy about it um what's here to stay and, and what's going back to the way it was
1: yeah i think the things that telemedicine is here to stay although it's already regressed some you know it went from one percent to 70 percent, back down to 20 but it's never gone back to one and i think the important thing about that is less about telemedicine and more about opening up the box of the way care is delivered uh, and 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 so in some ways it's a it's it's a starter drug for virtual care um, you know it's a sort of gateway that that okay the office visit you coming into our space and sitting in our waiting room and reading our di- reader's digest is not the only way we will take care of you. And I think, I think if it's just telemedicine, if it's just an office visit replacement, it's not a big deal, something. But if it really is okay, a lot of things can be done virtually. And so the way people do their finances and their travel and everything else from their house via their computer, we're gonna do more and more and more of that consumer-driven, much more democratic, uh, in healthcare and telemedicine is just sort of the beginning of that, then that's a very big deal. It's a sort of transformational moment in healthcare. I'd say another thing that kind of tipped, uh, and this is this doesn't sound really particularly interesting, but I think it's important, uh, were dashboards. Uh, if you're like me, and I think a lot of people are, they're going onto the web every day and looking at, uh, you know, COVID curves of deaths or test positivity rate, and what is it today in, you know, kids in school in Ann Arbor, let's look at what's going on there. Uh, there's a staggering amount of information that is now being presented to us in easy to use, visually attractive ways, and there is no tradition of that in healthcare. Uh, and so it again is the fact that it's happening. COVID is interesting and has been important in COVID, but I think it's also opened up people's imaginations to the possibilities now that pretty much all medical data are digital the question you know one of the most interesting things about the past 10 years is we went from analog to digital and healthcare and you basically don't have a massive transformation in the way care is delivered most of it still looks pretty much the same, but it provides the opportunity for care to be delivered in new ways where patients can do more things for themselves, where data are more easily available and not just in raw Excel spreadsheet form, but in ways that people can actually use, whether it's a patient or a doctor or a or a relative or a CEO. And I think those are probably the two biggest trends. There are other things that didn't tip like I thought might, like AI has still not had its moment. But I think I think the whole COVID has accelerated all of it, and things that would have taken ten years will take a shorter period of time, even if they haven't gotten to this to the finish line yet.
0: And how far do you think it could go? So, like, I, I have read a column for Fast Company and, and wrote one a few months ago, kind of satirically but not entirely, saying that um, the lessons of COVID could ultimately take us into a world. Where almost all functions are performed um, at home or digitally in some way, and we won't even actually need hospitals at some point in the future because there are these giant, expensive you know, cesspools of, of infectious diseases. Um, I mean, is that just in, is that insane? Or is there a well, world like, for example, we're investors in a startup that does at home phlebotomy, uh, and they have the, their view is, and Quest and LabCorp seem to agree. That it is cheaper actually to go do it that way than it is to operate a physical center um, how far could it go?
1: Well, I you know, I live and work in a hospital, so so <laughs> understood. A, a, a understood full of infection he is not the way I describe it, but yes, I I you know, how far could it go? There are certain physical limitations on how far it can go, but I think that it's unambiguous that the hospital is the most expensive and probably least attractive place for people to get care when they're really sick and in need. And so you want to use it as a last resort as opposed to what we do now, which is to use it not quite as a first resort, but somewhere in the middle. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that currently is in hospitals that can be done as well, probably better, and in the end probably more safely and certainly in a more satisfying way and a certainly in a less expensive way the question will be what the limit of that is I mean if you think about financial services or replacing your travel agent or getting your packages at home you know there, there, there are certain limitations on those things and we still go to the store for certain things you know we don't we don't buy a refrigerator through Amazon just yet I don't think in healthcare, when you really parse that there, are, we're probably not going to be doing your liver transplant or your cardiac bypass operation at home. We're probably not going to deliver your baby at home. Maybe that's a failure in my imagination and we'll get there eventually. Yeah, but, it, uh, we, I'm sure there are plenty of people in San
0: Francisco who uh, vehemently disagree with you about that. Right, I'm sure there are.
1: And if they have a good story and a couple of good PowerPoint slides, they're probably quite wealthy right now. But
0: yeah, it's to say they can come see us. We'll invest in their seat.
1: Right. Right. So, you know, so, so I think the, and, and, and therefore you are going to need these buildings you're going to need an emergency room you're going to need a place to do surgery a place to deliver babies a place to take care of desperately ill patients that need something that today we call an intensive care unit but tomorrow might call the hospital but we are constantly going to be nibbling at the edges of that and saying this thing does that really need to be in a hospital in a world where we can have home sensors home phlebotomy an x-ray coming into your house if necessary uh a doctor seeing you on telemedicine and i think we'll you know i think this will be incremental the same way the driverless car was incremental we didn't go from zero to driverless we went to cruise control and we went to lane you know uh, warning you you're veering out of your lane and the next thing you knew you had sort of quasi driverless cars i you know the, the the thing about the hospital though is there is some i believe at least in our current way of thinking about the world immutable minimum of sickness and complexity where if you didn't have it in this building that we call the hospital, you have to invent something that looks awfully like a hospital. <laughs> right. and, so, and then you need enough scale that it can work economically and have all the right specialists around. So what, what all that means, you know, it's a long way of saying, I could easily envision a world where 30% of what we currently do in hospitals is not done in hospitals. And probably 50% of what we currently do in the doctor's office is not done there, it's done It's done from home. And then what does that mean? It means you need fewer hospitals, you probably need bigger hospitals, they need to be built to mostly take care of really sick people, the economics have to be rejiggered, which turns out to not be that hard because hospitals make most of their money on the high-end fancy stuff. And they're often quite willing to give up the more you know, sort of low-key stuff that could be done Elsewhere, a lot of that depends on the payment model and whether it shifts. Uh, but yeah, I think you know, in a place like San Francisco, rather than ten hospitals, you'll have three. And rather than being a few of them being 200 beds, they'll all be five or 600 beds, and they'll all pretty much be one big intensive care unit, an emergency room, a labor and delivery unit, and a place that where you do, you know, really complex surgeries, with the basic surgeries being done in in come and stay in outpatient settings.
0: You had mentioned that AI was one of the kind of advancements that hadn't really had its moment in the sun during COVID. Um, where do you think AI can play a role in the healthcare system, and how much of your Kind of estimate of sort of 20 30 percent of hospital visits and 50 percent of doctors' visits being done remotely instead kind of requires AI to be working.
1: Yeah, I don't think AI is particularly important in that. I, you know, I think that that the AI will become important, and, and this is for clinical care. I think there's a lot of value in AI in just the really dumb business processes. Um, I just had a, a parent of mine died uh, a, a week or two ago, and we're just sure. going through thank you. I'm just we're just going through all of the, you know, insurance policy and banking and all that. And, and you know, thinking about that in healthcare, the number of massively frictionful experiences that really could be managed by, you know, smart AI is, is enormous. So I think AI's AI sort of first use case in medicine is just taking all this data, cleaning it up and decreasing the friction in the interactions that people have with the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Another thing that will force AI in the clinical world will be you know, everybody now, if you have an Apple Watch and you have a home oximeter and you have a digital scale and you have a digital glucometer, I'll hear people periodically who are who really don't know how healthcare works say, and how wonderful it's going to be that all that data is going to stream to your primary care doctor who's going to say, thank you. And I, I have 300 primary care doctors who work for me. If I tell them that all that data is streaming <laughs> to them, they're quitting by five o'clock. This afternoon. They're, gone. Yeah. <laughs> they're gone. That's not a world we can, we, we can't possibly do that. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not scale to manage that kind of data flow. So there has to be a new layer inserted in the healthcare system that is part AI, part telemedicine, but it's sort of all triage all the time to take all these signals and make sense of them and, and parse who's sick, not sick, who you need to see, how, you know, when you need to see them. All that has to happen. Where I'm a little skeptical of AI is sort of replacing the doctor as the diagnostic engine. I think that that can happen and probably will in fields that are about visual pattern recognition, you know, in in fields like radiology and dermatology and pathology. I don't think they'll replace the doctor per se, but they'll scale the doctor. They'll allow a doctor who right now is trudging through a hundred CAT scans to get the initial read on the CAT scans by the AI. And probably for a while, the doctor will still have to bless it and sign it and get paid for it. But you'll have one doctor be able to do two or three or five times as much work. What I do for a living, which is sort of diagnose complicated medical conditions, I, I may just be flattering myself and I don't have enough imagination or my ego. I, I, I can right?
0: read the intro again I, if you want.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah not good enough to, to to sort of say, oh yeah, you a know, computer can do that. But it feels pretty tough. And this has been a problem that people have been worried. You know, it was the sort of first problem that the AI, AI geeks began to attach uh, attack in medicine. They thought this would be sort of the easiest problem, replacing the doctor as the diagnostic engine. And it turns out to be sort of massively hard, and we've not made that much progress on it. So I think it comes later. I think that what happens sooner is the business processes, sort of the operational friction the how many nurses do we need on you know, 14 long today, uh, where we sort of guess at it today, but AI could probably figure that out better. It is the lots of signals coming into us digitally from lots of places and figuring out what is signal and what is noise. It might be a suggestion engine, that, you know, as opposed to sort of replacing me as a diagnostician. It could be a world in which it's reading, quote unquote, reading my medical note and saying, You know when i say well i think this is a pulmonary embolism it's saying you know idiot uh the last ten thousand patients we saw like this most of them had pneumonia a few of them had heart failure and one of them had pulmonary embolism do you want to think again i I could see that happening because that's really not that different than what netflix and amazon does every day so there'll be some of that but the, the, the sort of sexiest thing which is replacing the doctor's brain i think will be the last thing that happens and and the other point i guess i would make with that is Not only is it the hardest thing, but you have this malpractice system sort of hanging over all of it, and so it 's a little bit like the driverless car problem you know you 've got to get it right pretty much all the time because if you screw it up and it's the technology uh they'll be held to pay and probably appropriately so the, the the threshold to get it right is very very high
0: so is is that why you know in other industries we see that technology puts downward pressure on prices, and we haven 't really seen that in healthcare. Is that why? Because there's still just such a significant need for really specialized, really intelligent human beings. And as a result, you know, the economic benefits that, that you see elsewhere just aren't going to be the same.
1: We're pretty good at defending our prices and our, and our franchise. I, I, you know, there, there, is, there are a number of reasons why healthcare hasn't gotten cheap. I mean, the economic model doesn't put a whole lot of competitive pressure on the incumbents. And the incumbents you know there are a lot of players in that pie, and it 's very easy for each of them to point to each other as the problem, so you know is it pharma is it the hospitals, is it the doctors is it the nurses is it, you know the answer is it's sort of all of us it is very, very complicated to take care of you know it's pretty easy to take care of high blood pressure and, and almost silly that I am doing that as opposed to ai it, it, you know it's a fairly algorithmic problem, but that 's not really where the costs lie. The costs lie in folks like my dad who had you know 10 things going on there there were huge interactions between thing 3 and three, thing 9 in terms of if he had a symptom which one it was if there were interactions between the medicines he was on you had to know that this drug was appropriate for thing 2 but not for him because he also has thing 6 and he's on this other medicine i mean it it a computer theoretically could do it but it's it's really hard there's a lot of coordination that's necessary not just among internists and cardiologists and surgeons, but then, you know, across nurses and nutritionists and physical therapists. And then medicine does something that is, I don't know if it's unique, but it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, which is, you know, when we get better at stuff, people want more of it. So you used to die, you know, with your knees hurting and your liver failing and your whatever. And now we're going to replace all those things. And, um, you know, when, when my sort of favorite story about this is is when I was in medical school, if you needed your gallbladder out, you ended up with about a 10-inch scar across your abdomen. You stayed in the hospital a week, cost, you know, uh, cost a boatload of money, had about a 1% or 2% mortality rate. Huge deal. Uh, And around 1990 or so, we came up with laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So rather than the 10-inch scar, scar, you have a couple little pinhole scars. Uh, Stayed a day in the hospital instead of a week. Lower mortality, lower morbidity. You're back at work in three days rather than a month later. And the cost was about half. How much do we spend on gallbladder surgery in the United States? Much, much more than we used to. Why? Because in the old days, we didn't take your gallbladder out unless you were you would turn yellow and you were screaming in pain. And now if we happen to see gallstones on an ultrasound, we're doing for something else. We ask you, have you ever had belly pain? I've never seen anybody who never had belly pain. They say yes. We said, oh, you need your gallbladder out. It's really not that big a deal. And you know that times a thousand. Your cataracts, your you know your knees, your hips, your whatever. So there's a lot of forces that you know as we get better. Unlike in technology, where costs come down, as we get better, demand goes up, and often prices go up. So the economic model is pretty tricky to sort out.
0: And and I mean. So if 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 you're the consumer, obviously, you always want the better knees, get rid of the cataracts, whatever, get rid of the the, the faulty gallbladder, whatever it is. I mean, do you think, though, kind of knowing all of the challenges we face in paying for healthcare, that it's sustainable for us to just provide the best possible care, regardless of cost to every individual, or, or, or is the priority going to have to shift?
1: Well, you know, I, I could give you an answer that will sound smart, except for the fact that... Um, I read and probably wrote articles in 1990 and 95 that said, we're spending 13% of our GDP on healthcare. It is unsustainable. And clearly that was wrong because not only was it sustained, what, what's it right at now? To 19, yeah. we're at 19% yeah. now. We're at $4 right, trillion right. Dollars a year. So part of that is people want more stuff. Part of that is every dollar of that is somebody's mortgage. And you know there's somebody who does well with that. Part of that is we've come up with new innovations. You know, you come in with cancer today, you're getting a very, very different kind of treatment than you have gotten before. Uh, Some of it works almost magically, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and most people want that. And we in America are not comfortable with the concept of rationing. Uh, You could argue we shouldn't be. We're a wealthy country. People value their health. Um, Now, I don't want to defend all of that. There's a fair amount of it that's waste. There's some of it that's fraud. There's some of it that is truly low value care, meaning we spend a lot of money on it. It really doesn't add a lot of benefit to you. You know, a new cancer drug comes out and it costs a couple hundred thousand bucks and on average it extends life a month. Is that really a good call? You know, a rational society would say you shouldn't do that until you're sure that everybody's got their blood pressure treated, their cholesterol treated, and everybody who's homeless is being housed, every kid is guaranteed good, amel- good public elementary school, all that stuff. It's not the way we tend to think. We tend to think of healthcare as, in some ways, a sacred space where everybody should have, have access to the best possible care. They clearly don't get it, but they don't get it in a, in a way that's not rationally determined. So, for example, you know, someone very poor who's on Medicaid, for example, if they come in and need a bone marrow transplant, they're probably going to get it. But if they need primary care, they're probably not. And that's wacky. I mean, that doesn't make yeah. any sense, but the system kind of is the system and it's awfully hard to disentangle it. And so if if I
0: gave you a magic wand and said, okay, Bob, you know, I'm going to give you th- three things you can do that there'll be no pushback at all. Everyone will just say, you're, you're right, Dr. Walker, and that's it. Um,
1: what would they be? Well, I, I think this technological transformation is really important. It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be painful. But I think when we get to the end of the end of the road here, which, you know, it could be three years, five years, more likely 10, uh, it'll be better. It, it, you know, you will have tech doing stuff that humans do now, and it'll do it cheaper and better. Patients will be able to do more things themselves. I think there'll be less friction in the system. I think it'll take out a lot of costs and make the whole thing more satisfying than it is now. So that that is one i think we should be more hard-nosed about the connection between evidence and drug approval and payment policy so we are very wimpy about that we you know are, 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 i mean we're seeing this all through the alzheimer's drug being sort of the most visible example recently but the idea that the fda's approval standard is you just have to prove it safe and effective it can, be, it can be effective, meaning it gives you an extra year of life at the cost of a million dollars. It's still getting approved. And once it's approved, all the payers pay for it. That's silly. I mean, I, I get it. I see how it happens. It's probably the least politically contentious thing to do. But that new Alzheimer's drug that has not been proven to have any significant clinical benefit and actually has significant risk is leading to everybody in the country's Medicare premiums being raised 100 bucks a year this year just for that. the anticipated payments for that drug. And so it 's emblematic of a system that doesn't really connect value to cost to payment to approval, and I think we 've got to be more hard nosed about that there are other countries, Britain being one of them that will say you know if we 're going to approve this thing for coverage it's got to be worth it 's not only got to be effective it 's got to be worth the money now if you're you know well to do and you can afford to pay for it out of pocket, fine, but the insurance company distort the insurance uh, system distorts this. Very much so. I think that's got to be fixed, and then I think the third thing, which is sort of you know to be in a way, is moving from a our fee for service payment model where just the more stuff we do, the more we get paid, to a model that is probably more like Kaiser Permanente, where we're we're all prepaid. We know what we're getting for your care on January 1st, when therefore our incentive is to do the best we can at the lowest cost. You have to build in some counter incentives to be sure we don't scrimp on that. But I think that's a, if I, you're inventing a healthcare payment system, that's a much more sensible way of doing it. than fee-for-service, I don't subscribe to the notion that Doctors and hospitals are out there gouging people and doing unnecessary surgeries and admitting you to the hospital just to make money. I don't think that's I mean it happens, but I don't think that's the dominant issue. I think the dominant issue is there's a lot of decisions in healthcare that are really on the margin. It's you know, it is a it's a toss-up. The evidence is a toss-up. And when your incentives to do more, you do more. And that's the incentive for the system. It's also the incentive for the patients. If it's covered, you do more too. And so you're trying to come up with a system where the incentives are more toward, can we do what's the best, how do we deal with the best care at the lowest cost that's satisfying to patients, that doesn't scrimp, but it doesn't overspend on things that either have no value or value that's not worth the money. Right. And finding those balances politically, obviously, is, is not easy to say the least.
0: Um, I'm going to ask you a question now that I'm sure you're tired of answering because people have been asking you, I imagine, around the clock lately. Uh, Omicron, how worried are you? How worried should the listeners be?
1: What should we be doing? Uh, medium, uh, you know, it is it, 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 it's definitely not a nothing burger. Uh, it could be anything from medium bad to truly awful. And you just kind of have to hold your horses. I mean, we will know this in probably two weeks. Um, my guess, I mean, you know, when you just look at the mutations, it is it is Frankenstein. I mean, it is sort of a it is a greatest hits kind of all the bad, all the bad mutations. It's figured it out. Um, I'd say the betting is that it is somewhat more transmissible than Delta, which is bad. For two reasons one is it's more transmissible than delta and b it then will win the race against delta uh to become the dominant uh the dominant strain if it were not as transmissible it can be as nasty as it wants to be in terms of severity or immune escape, but as long as it, it stays a minor player, uh, sort of on the sidelines. But the way it took off in South Africa is, is, is troubling. In terms of severity, I think the jury's completely out. Could be more severe, could be less severe. I don't know that it matters that much. I think that's the one that's probably not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is, does it evade our immune system? And the, whether you got your immunity from vaccines or from an infection, you know, right now, I've had my, bo- I had my booster three weeks ago, I am 95 percent protected uh, against getting COVID, and 99ish percent protected against getting super sick and dying. And if that number goes down to 80 because of uh, of Omicron, that's you know that's survivable. Particularly, I think I can wait it out for four or five months until Moderna and Pfizer come out with a rejiggered booster, and I'll be a little more careful for a few months. If that number goes down to 30. We're kind of screwed. I mean, we're not back to ground zero because 30 is still not nothing. Because we have some effective treatments, I'm particularly excited about the new Pfizer drug, which should still work okay. We now have better testing. You know, there's a lot of. It's not like we're back to March 2020, but we, you know, we 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 roll back the clock quite a bit. In terms of where we where we are, and I just there's just no way to know other than waiting a few weeks. You just definitely want to get vaccinated and boosted by the time this thing hits the shore, because there's going to be some degradation uh, in in immunity, and you want to start from the highest level possible.
0: And a, a few weeks simply because it will have either spread fast enough at that point to have a realistic assessment uh, of of how quickly people are getting it and how damaging it is, or a few weeks because then we'll see how the people in South Africa who were hit by it kind of ended up.
1: Yeah. To, to answer all three of the, the the real scientifically important and clinically important questions, is it more severe? Is it more transmissible? Is it immune resistant? Uh, take some time. Some of the time is epidemiologic time. You have to sort of see a whole bunch of cases and then do the math to see how many of them happened in people who were fully vaccinated and how many of them happened in people who weren't vaccinated to give you a sense of the efficacy you also do can do some test tube experiments where you create a model of the virus and then put in uh, plasma from people with with antibodies and you can see how well it neutralizes it all that stuff just takes you know takes a few weeks in terms of the severity there's no good, you know, what, what you're hearing now is sort of what people are predicting from the molecular structure, which, you know, we're a hell of a lot smarter about this thing than we were a year and a half ago. There, I, I, Those predictions are going to be reasonably accurate. But, for example to see whether it's more severe you just can't there's no way to tell other than seeing whether it's more severe you know sort of looking at 100 people with it and 100 people with delta and seeing what happens to them and that just takes time to spool out yeah so last question C- clearly as a society we weren't
0: fully prepared for covid or maybe even pandemics in, in general um what are we not paying enough attention to right now that worries you that in 3 years or 5 years you might like, goddamn and i i knew I, you know i knew we should have focused on that
1: well, I think we've proven in the last, you know, year and a half that our science is pretty good and our culture, politics and sociology suck. I mean, there's no, you know, I mean that's that's yep. the part I look at the way we developed the vaccine and uh, you know, the distribution could have been better, the logistics weren't perfect, all that kind of stuff. But I think all of that pales in comparison to the fact that, you know, today Forty percent of Americans have chosen not to get vaccinated. I find that that's just you know just gobsmacking. I mean, sort of. You know, this- what what's what's the what have you found is the most effective thing you can tell someone that makes them then choose to get vaccinated? Nothing. I mean, I just I, I think if at this point you are not vaccinated, you have managed to brush aside so much science and information and horror stories about people like you who made the same choice and their dying wish was to get vaccinated and we're going to give you, you know, a $500 gift certificate and you take a run around Talladega racetrack, if that's, you know, I mean, It's it's, I mean, that's the problem. I have 200,000 people who follow me on Twitter. I'm not convinced I've changed anybody's mind. I think it's an echo chamber. I think people who follow me want to follow people who they think are, you know, speaking realistically about the science. You know, I've tried everything. I, you know, I think in the beginning you could have made the argument that these things were approved and came through the pipeline very quickly. So there's people who said, I want to give it some time. Okay. You know, come on now, 200 million Americans have taken it. The the side effect the profile is completely clear. It is, you know, it's massively clear that these vaccines have been enormously effective and are staggeringly safe. And so there's almost nothing I can think of. You know, I'm sure there's somebody smarter than me out there who can come up with something. But I think we're at a stage where people have dug in. This is now about political identity or you sort of put your nickel down and it's too... It's too uh, you know, hard to, from a face-saving standpoint to sort of go back on what you said. And um, so, you know, I'm in the head-scratching stage. I just haven't yeah. figured out what's going to yeah. change the equation here. Well, on that uplifting note, I guess yeah, we'll sure end is. it. So um, <laughs>
0: Dr. Walter, th- thank, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it's it. My pleasure. Thank you.